You are listening to The Think Tank, the unofficial NAFO podcast, brought to you by your best brain-damaged dogs and friends. Now please welcome your hosts, Matt, the TWAFO CEO, and Joe Place. Welcome to the Think Tank episode four. Less pronouncing nonsense, more pronouncing knowledge. Today in our tank, I am your host, Joe Place, and next to me, half legs missing <laughs> the kettle, is our other host. Hi, how are you doing? Hi, Joe. Hi, Maria. And our guest, Maria Blancas. Is it Blancas? Yeah, that's right. It's Blancas. Very well pronounced. No worries. Oh, yeah, my wife's learning Spanish. But, uh, my mine is like the basic twenty words that every British person knows. Dos cervezas, pop of all, you know. Very, very good. Okay, cool. So yes, this is episode four. We're going to talk about. Well, let's see what we're going to talk about. But I think we're going to be talking a lot about China. Okay, so let's just quickly start. Maria, can you please introduce yourself? Just who are you in? Just a few sentences. Well, yeah, my name is Maria Blancas, and yes, I'm. I'm. I had the, the honor of participating in this whole thing of the fellas. It, I have to say that it's very interesting, you know, being from a Latin American country and being involved with this, considering the whole, you know, the the whole fuss and disaster that our governments have presented regarding their position against, you know, not really being against Russia, but at the same time voting in the UN against Russia. That's like a sort of strange position. But yeah, I'm very happy to be here. I was born in Mexico. And well, I lived in the UK. I lived in South Korea and I lived in Finland. And I hold a PhD in China studies. And currently I'm working in a foreign embassy in Mexico. So yeah, whatever you guys want to, you know, want to know about about me or about what I do, please feel free to ask. Uh, I'm curious, what, what exactly did you cover in your PhD? I mean, I know that's always a nightmare question, but, you know, in brief. Well, actually, you know how it is. Like, you prepare a research proposal and you have, like, a sort of an idea of what you want to do. So I was interested in economic sanctions and foreign policy. And in general, this part of, you know, trade and exchange and obviously Asia. I've always been interested in China, in Japan and in South Korea. So I wanted to do something that related to that and also that would relate to China's, you know, current role in the world as a major trade partner, because basically everyone has uh, economic relations with China. But I also wanted to explore, explore like a sort of different perspective of sanctions after seeing in Korea how China reacted when South Korea wanted to you know, to create systems of defense against North Korea that China took it like a personal aggression. But that was not the first time. Actually, it happened also with Japan when Japan took a very, uh, let's say, decisive position towards the property of their islands that China's, the Senkaku Daoyu islands, that China argues that they are theirs and Japan says that they are theirs. So obviously, from that moment, I said, I really would like to explore this part of 
the different perspective of economic sanctions, because obviously China hasn't been like very strong in military terms, at least in this in these two situations, because obviously Korea has a very good army. And and yeah, so it's called economic statecraft because everybody assumes that sanctions are like the typical way of um, of imposing some sort of pressure to another country. But they have changed, like from blo- from the blockade to, to Cuba, we have moved forward quite a way from there. So yeah, that's pretty much my main topic of research and the one that I that I explored in my thesis, but with the case of Mexico. That's actually super interesting. And yeah, I, I've got some more questions about sort of late a bit later, more about your perspective on the, the current relationship between China, Russia. And I think I will also pick your brain a bit about things in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, before we do that, I just want to give a bit of a recap on what's been going on since we last recorded. So a lot of various news has taken place. We've had, I think the biggest things we've had was the ICC warrant for Putin. We've had Russia saying they will move nukes to Belarus and then seemingly not. And the big thing, which I think we will talk about, is the also the, the China visit to Russia. Maria, first of all, any of these events, do you have any commentary on this? Is there anything you think that's recently happening that is that you just have any thoughts on that you would like to share in general? Just what's been going on first, more topical before we go into depth. Yeah, basically, I think we all got surprised with the ICC warrant. But obviously, as you guys know, uh, Russia is not a signatory country of this. However, the rest of the world is. So obviously, this represents a sort of pressure point for Russia. And I think that they feel pressured because a lot of the reactions they have been, you know, showing to us when we say here that if you do not owe anything to anyone, you shouldn't be afraid. However, I do smell that they are sort of scared that if they put a a foot out of Russia, that they will be incarcerated or at least, you know, arrested. Yeah. And I think it's interesting, you said about the reactions, you know, Armenia saying basically this, that was quite a surprise because Armenia has generally had quite close relationships with Russia until relatively recently. And that's sort of, again, an indication that the countries that were typically in its orbit, uh, I'm saying quotation marks, they're, they're losing that. And I think, yeah, and the other aspect, I suppose, my view is that it is about a precedent as well. You know, this is the first organisation, maybe we'll see more. Maybe not. Like I don't think many people are necessarily expecting. Yes, someone's going to go and arrest Putin right away. But it is interesting. I think. I think it's it's more than just a token gesture. It's also had a bit of a um, an impact in America and made people question whether they to what to what level they are should be involved in this as well because I don't think they're signatories are they at the moment so they they basically enforce ICC rules unless it affects them because they they, they, they right. don't like it. and some people wanted to include some Americans a while back okay um yeah uh, it, it certainly yeah. Still re- reopened that debate um from when I was I was looking at some um points online so that could be interesting to watch as well People say this thing quite often that they, you know, like, oh, but why isn't so and so from uh, USA or whatever on this? My response is probably should be fine. It doesn't matter. It doesn't undermine the fact that Putin deserves to be there. It's like, okay, maybe some other people should. It's like saying lots of murderers went free. Why should we arrest this guy for murder? It's like, well, because you, well, that doesn't, it doesn't make sense. You don't, just because law can be fickle, it can be inconsistent. It doesn't mean that. <laughs> I don't know. It's, just, it's a really stupid argument. But... So, Maria, you're in Mexico. Where, where in Mexico are you, if you're okay to say that? Uh, I live in Mexico City, guys. Mm. I've been living here for quite 
you know, throughout my life. So okay. it's the capital. And as you can imagine, of course, the whole political and economic activities focused on here. Mm -hmm. But obviously, many companies in general, because, you know, of course, we are like so close to the United States. And that's very convenient for many, you know, for many businesses. So apart from Mexico City, I would say that maybe the decision-making centers are here. Mm -hmm. However, factories and manufacturing plants, most of them are located in an area called Bajio, which is uh, close to the north. And of course, in the, northern, in the border, close to the border with the United States, there's a lot of manufacturing places. But basically, you know, the, let's say that the, the matrix offices of the company and all companies are based in Mexico City. So yeah, I basically lived here throughout my life and so you know you're obviously very far away from from ukraine from the the war how do the average people conceive of this war well i've got to say that in general mexicans they hold a favorable opinion towards ukraine like most people that you ask around you know in the, in the, in the street or when you're in the restaurant or whatever, most of them are in favor of Ukraine. There are some people that are in favor of Russia. And unfortunately, the most prevalent discourse, at least in the political sphere, is that we are with Russia. But that's why a lot of, a lot of people ask Mexicans, like, why is your position in the UN against Russia? Because obviously our foreign policy has a very long tradition of doing what is right. And in that regard, I am very thankful that our representative in the UN has that very clear. So uh -huh. although, although you know, there's a lot of pressure from these very small interest groups that are with Russia, because obviously my government praises itself of being of left wing and that we respect self-determination and things like that. But to be honest, I mean, in here, we all know that that's just bluffing because our president has given non-requested opinions about politics in Peru and politics in, in other places. And he has also defended people like Daniel Ortega. So obviously a lot of Mexicans are against that because obviously that goes against our, our traditions and our, let's say, our discourse of respecting human rights. Of course, you know that there's a big difference between discourse and, the, and you know, the real world. But at least in the part of foreign policy, we've always been on the side of doing what is right. So I would say that right now it's not like the best time for us in foreign policy. But I think that had we had a different chief of state, maybe we would have been able to support Ukraine more because the, let's say, the efforts that Mexico has been doing to help Ukraine have not gone far from being humanitarian. However, there are also individuals, for example, like me or like my Mexican fellow colleagues, that we have been doing some small fundraising campaigns because obviously, guys, as you know, Saint Javelin and United for Ukraine, most campaigns for, for donating to Ukraine, they are in euros or in dollars. So the part of currency exchange, it's a bit of an issue for us. Mm -hmm. And um, additionally, the Ukrainian diaspora in Mexico has also been, you know, spreading information and letting people know about their projects to support uh, uh, Ukrainians and also to... There's a very good one called uh, Proyecto Ajolote, which consists of basically bringing Ukrainian soldiers who have lost, you know, an arm or a leg to Mexico to receive Mexican treatment and mm -hmm. also for their prosthetics. So basically it includes bringing them from Ukraine, uh, the, you know, getting them to, to, to a specialist, 
uh, finding the prosthetic, paying for it, and paying from for the treatment. So as you guys know, this is very expensive because obviously uh, in Mexico, nobody has access to public hospitals except us, also for social welfare. So all of this, it's being paid to a private hospital. So they have been able to gather some funds, but most of their, they have a preference for, you know, big, big donors. So although they have a PayPal and everything, we have been able to donate a little bit, but, you know, for these kind of treatments, of course, you need a lot of money. So they have basically organized, they have been selling art. They have also been inviting people to buy products. So yeah, basically these are the kind the campaigns being held in Mexico. But unfortunately, in terms of government support, we have very little. That's really interesting to hear. That's really good to hear because I have, well, first of all, I know for a fact, you know, Russia puts a lot of effort into disinformation and propaganda in Spanish language and targeting Latin America. Yes. And I've had friends who I have like met some friends who, who, you know, tell me how, you know, when they watch the news in Spanish, they see a lot of stuff like, oh, NATO is also bad. And there's a lot of this focus. And I understand historically, I understand, you know, a lot of like, especially in Southern America, Central America, there's a lot of legitimate grievances. I understand that. But still, I do think that it's quite dangerous, and I, I feel this is a part of the world which does have a that there are, are some vocal elements in support of Russia. So it's interesting to hear that at least in Mexico there is grassroots support. I've got to be honest with you. I mean, of course, my mother tongue is Spanish, but guys, I've got to tell you something. If Russian propaganda sounds stupid in English, Jesus Christ, in Spanish it it sounds like absolute nonsense. <laughs> Like I really, really have read a lot of a lot of their posts in, in Spanish, and I'm like, this is crap. It doesn't this doesn't even make sense to me. So yeah. obviously, whoever distributes propaganda here is not a really smart person, guys. I've got to tell you. <laughs> That's fantastic. Oh, this is this is brilliant. <laughs> so, do you think they're just using Google Translate or something like that? I think so. Yeah, they use Google Translate, but. They don't even bother, you know, making the, the composition of the sentence right. Wow. So, because obviously we have our own grammar rules and Spanish is a flexible language, but they are mm. abusing it way too much. I, I know that there's a girl in Spain. She's Russian. She lives in Spain. I think she went back to Russia now. And she she became a blogger there and she does a lot of Spanish and got invited to the TV show in Spain. I think it's like some Russia Today proxy Spanish language thing. But I, I, yeah, again, her name she... is Liu Liu Sivaya, and she's uh, uh no comments. <laughs> yeah, but even I've heard like she's not even like Spanish; she's Russian. So, uh, it's funny. Yeah, okay. basically, I mean, it's her, and there are also other Twitter pages distributing the propaganda. But um, most of the material is produced on her page or on her videos. But yeah. <laughs> with the Spanish fellas, it's really funny because we've come to a point where we just make fun of her because nothing that absolutely nothing of what she says makes, makes sense, guys. Trust me, it's just like, oh my god, what? That is good. That is fantastic to know. That is fantastic to me. We, um, we definitely need we definitely need to um, track down some of the worst um, examples. Then yeah, we'll we'll find some. Speaking of fellas and stupid humor, uh, Maria, I, I think you joined NAFO at a similar time to me, but I'm not sure when did you join NAFO and why? It was in July of last year, and I wanted to do something more for for Ukraine. Because obviously, you know, sitting down here on the other corner of the world, I was like, what else could I do about, apart from donating? Then I saw on Twitter all these really cute, you know, avatars. So I was like, I want one. Why not? But the way I got into NAFO was very funny because um, 
actually it happened to me that um, I was a victim of fraud from someone that was posing as the Georgian legend. Thankfully, the actually PayPal gave me my money back because I oh. argued that it was a fraud, a fraudster, and that the address was not, you know, the one that it was supposed to be. So later on, I came across with, well, during that, precisely on that day, I came across with Kama and with Pete, and they both were super nice with me. Actually, they were the very first ones that I had contact with. And yeah, that's how I became a fella, because Pete told me, you know what, because I, I basically crushed that fake page. So Pete told me, well, welcome. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. I, I remember because yeah I joined this last June or July and I, I remember seeing you in this our little Twitter bubble I, I think everyone has their own weird little bubble and I remember seeing you a lot there in, I, I have a new question I'm going to ask all our guests if you could describe NAFO um, as if to, to a grandparent or a child how would you do it? Well, actually, my parents, when I told them about NAFO, they were very happy that I was getting involved in that. And they are openly supportive. Actually, even my mother has told me to, you know, to gather some funds, like a little bit more of funds. But yeah, in general, my parents and the rest of my family, when I told them that I was being involved in this, they were very happy to know. And they said, well, you know what, congratulations. Even at my workplace, <laughs> my bosses were like, wow, this is, that's really, really good. How did you explain it to them? Well, you know, honestly, I'm very lucky to be in a place where actually the main government is very supportive of Ukraine. And um, and they have even sold very good equipment to Poland. So basically, when I told my bosses about it, they, were, they said, wow, that's really, really good. They said it's very necessary for people to be very well informed about what's happening in Ukraine. And that, yeah, and basically... Currently, actually, I think nobody here pays attention to Russia or the Russian embassy from the mm. diplomatic corps, except, of course, their friends, you know, China, Iran, and so on. But yeah, in general, they are very supportive. And even though, of course, I, I, I'm in the office and everything, but the embassy of Ukraine is just next to us. So yeah, I've been able to bring them, you know, some gifts or some candies or visit them around. When you would you say like I dress? Did you say to your parents like I have a dog picture and I bonked nonsense on Twitter? How how did you? What did you say? I literally said that I that I was try I was working with with you know people with dog avatars who try to yeah bonk Russian disinformation that that we are also trying to crush Russian pages that are spreading disinformation basically. <laughs> That's a really, really succinct summary. That's better than what me and Matt just tried to do. Uh, I, I will, I will claim, I will, I will trump that and say that both my parents are in NAFO. Oh. Awesome. They both have fellas. Really? Yeah. That's really cool. Well, I have my mom on Twitter, but um, she, well, she's actually, well, she's an air traffic controller, but she's retired now. However, she's in Twitter and yeah, she's always very supportive of all my publications. And also I've been very lucky to know some of the foreign, you know, foreign ambassadors here in Mexico. And they are also very supportive. I have some of them following on, following me on Twitter. Yeah, also Mexican diplomats, because regardless of whatever the main government says here, actually, I would say 90% of our foreign service are against what Russia is doing. Mm-hmm. That's cool to know. Matt, how would you do it? I'd show them um, GNU control, Jen Bones's um, video. Mm-hmm. Uh, the black and white uh, NAFE time, you know, the NAFE 
um, newsreel. That, yeah. That's one of my favorite videos. I'd definitely show them that as the introduction. How would you explain it though? Like, like one sentence? I can't. It's impossible. <laughs> I need to, you've caught me out. I need to, I need to have a think about that. <laughs> we just do so much. People pretending to be dogs fighting disinformation with and raising and, and raising it, money it, and <laughs> a really long run on sentence. Can we just say that we work for the CIA? Is that all right? Yeah, that's better. Yeah, yeah. Let's put that on the CV. <laughs> <laughs> We see um, sort of border disputes being weaponized, Belarus um, having organized crime, possibly Russian uh, influences. Do you think there's anything going on in Mexico of, that, of a similar sort of nature? Well, then it's actually even before the war, it was very common for us here, not only maybe for me, but maybe a little bit more for people who live in in places that are suffering out of violence related to the drug war. Yeah, mm -hmm. unfortunately, there's a lot of, um, uh, well, not a lot, but there is presence of Russian mafia in Mexico. There have been some scandals about it. And even the previous ambassador was actually involved in a drug scandal in Argentina when he was in Argentina. So unfortunately for me, it was not a coincidence to find out that he was later sent to, to Mexico. Because obviously Russian mafias, they are not only involved, you know, with frauds or with money laundering, but also with scandals related to drug trafficking and all the businesses related to it. So, yeah, there's a lot of, mm. um, of there's a debate and a lot of questioning to our, let's say, to our authorities regarding the presence of those groups here. Because, I mean, apart from the fact that we are close to the United States, like pretty much this is causing a lot of problems to us in terms of our personal safety because a lot of places in the country people cannot live in peace anymore and we have a, a problem of internal displacement but yeah there's there's little but consolidated uh, presence of russian mafias in here first question for me from, from me what do you think people th this is general it's not to do with russia is to do anything but I'm just, I think it's important to have this. What is something that you think people don't understand about China? Well, you see, it's just not opposed to Japan. Our, our bilateral relation with China started in 1972. Mm -hmm. So obviously it's relatively more recent as opposed to Korea, because with Korea we started to have, uh, we established diplomatic relations in 1962. And with Japan, here are these guys, 1609 was our first contact with Japan. So basically our very main, uh, well, I would say main in quotes, because obviously right now Korean uh, Korean investment has surpassed uh, Japan Japan's investment in Mexico that used to be like on the third or fourth place. But yeah, there's a lot of misconception from regarding China in Mexico. Actually, there's um, our history with China hasn't been easy in general terms because we had some migration in the beginning of the, well, around the mid 19th century that they started to establish themselves in the northern part of Mexico. And unfortunately, mm -hmm. I've got to tell you that although in Mexico we ha you have a diversity of people, sadly, there is a lot of prevalent um, racism in our society. And back then, it was even more noticeable. So it was very hard for them to live in the north part because a lot of people were rude to 
to them, discriminated them. And there was um, and there was actually a, a very unfortunate event in 1911, I think it was, where a lot of them got killed just close to the city of Tijuana, what is today Tijuana. So, yeah, that's uh, that's a, a very bad, let's say, uh, preceding preceding event. And later on, of course, you know, we had an increasing, let's say, interaction with other countries. And after the signature of what it's today, the, the US-Canada-Mexico agreement, and before that, it was known as NAFTA. So obviously, that also opened us to the world. But I would say that for Mexicans, we see what the Chinese are seen as very hardworking, that they are, that, that whatever you need, they will have it. And yeah, they are regarded as people who you know, are dedicated to trade and that, that are very hardworking. But nevertheless, there's still, you know, this prevalent idea that everything in Asia, it's China. So for us mm-hmm. who who have studied Asia for a long time, we say like, no, there's a big difference yeah. between Japan, between Korea, between Taiwan. Like you've got to differentiate them. <laughs> mm-hmm, definitely. It's it's quite interesting because when, when I lived in Vietnam, uh, even my wife's Ukrainian, mm-hmm. like sometimes Vietnamese would say to her, you know, like, oh, Ukraine, that's part of Russia, right? They just, in their mind, no. like, Europe is... Uh, like France, Germany, Britain, and Russia, and it's like, well, and then and the response she would give, like, oh yeah, Vietnam is part of China, right? And they'd be like, oh never, and it's like, right. It's, uh, so obviously, a lot of people no matter in the world, if they're not really good at geography and history, they just they lump countries together. I think. No, and I've got to tell you that actually, for for me, when I when I started living in Korea, and also when my father got to Korea, like the very first things that we noticed uh, from from Korean people is that they are very friendly with foreigners in general. And the common conception in Mexico, because I was told this by my by my Asian studies teacher, he lived in Japan for 10 years, and he was saying something about the Japanese being a little bit more open to foreigners, but I, I'm actually, I do not agree with that. I would say that in Asia, in general, the Taiwanese and the Chinese are more open to, you know, to know foreigners, as opposed to Japan. In Japan, there are still many places where they are not very open to to foreigners i mean they are friendly but regarding you know integration of you as a as an outsider to to the society i think it's a little bit harder in japan and in korea however we were super, we were very happily surprised when they were very inviting to us in terms that whenever we would go to a restaurant they would they would give us food and they would invite us you know they would give us stuff for free for us to try they were always very curious you know asking us about mexico asking us about basically, you know, what was life here, what we, what we were doing in Korea. And yeah, I mean, anywhere you go in Korea, if you buy, for example, I don't know, a box of chocolates, they would give you chocolates for free. I also remember an experience where my parents bought a bag of coffee, you know, like, but the coffee was not grounded. So we basically needed to find a place where we could um, where we could ground the coffee. We went to a supermarket and we were asking, like, excuse me, what can we do with this bag of coffee? Because we cannot eat, you know, we cannot prepare the coffee just with the grains. There was the, and we didn't buy the coffee there. I think my parents bought it in Costco. And you know what happened? A lady who was selling Nescafe coffee actually helped us to ground the coffee. She didn't charge us anything. And they gave us free samples. I mean, from that day, I realized what type of people Koreans are. They are just, you know, amazing. Like with us, they were amazing. So obviously, yeah, I'm very, I personally, my dad, well, the three of us, my mom, my mom, my dad and me, we are very grateful to them because they have been amazing. I mean, amazing. And yeah, when I was in at King's, obviously in my department, 
many of them were, of course, 80% were from China and the 20% we were from anywhere else. But mm -hmm. yeah, that was also very interesting experience because many times I went out with out for dinner with them and they were very kind. I also had Taiwanese colleagues. So yeah, in general, once that you get involved, you know, with, with them, you start to understand, you know, how they view the world and you also understand the importance of certain gestures uh, they have and the relevance that certain things have in their culture as opposed to our culture. Because for example, the role of food in Korea is just It's very, very important. Like if they share something uh, of their food with you, that's like a big, like a, like a huge honor. So mm -hmm. yeah, that's the kind of details that in the West we should understand about these countries. Do you think, what do you think of perhaps some stereotypes that you see in the West, let's say, that are most wrong, most offensive that we need to sort of move past? Mm, well, obviously the West is called the West for a reason. And... Mm -hmm. And obviously, China and Japan and Asia in general has been considered the Far East for another reason. And the Middle East is considered as the Middle East for another reason. So it's it's basically based on, 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 on how, how to say, how we behave as societies, how we view the world and how we, we view certain things around us. For example, the role of family. For ex I can, it comes to my mind the example of how Japan sees the working shifts. And how they the working shift is regarded in Europe, and how it's regarded in Mexico, for example, or the role of, of our of our superiors, for example, our parents, our bosses, or our grandparents. So basically, in in Europe, for me, for example, the role of family it's important, but not as important as in China or as in Mexico, and the role of the of how grandparents or our ancestors have a role in how the the whole family behaves or how the family follows a pattern in korea it's very noticeable like you can see that the elderly people have a very important role inside the family in terms of decision making or giving their opinion and prioritizing their opinion over anything else as opposed to europe for instance Like these are the kind of things that I think are like a little bit of um, the major differences, more of um, rather than cultural differences, I would say it's um, behaviors in society. Same for mm -hmm. China. Yeah. So, okay. That brings you on to the next bit. So I want to ask about, okay, you, you, you've you studied a lot about China. You've lived in Asia. When you see, you know, political analysis uh, going around the internet or whatever, or even in the academic journals and things like that, Yeah. Are there some like mistakes that you see keeping uh, crop up? You know, things that people don't understand that, that they get wrong. So you know, because quite often when I read stuff about Ukraine to people who've never set foot there, I'm like, no, you've not understood that. You're you're using stereotypes. You're doing this. Are there any examples like that, but for the Asian region? Yeah, I would say there are because, of course, if you ask me, for example, how I view Eastern Europe. I gotta tell you that before I started studying in London, my master's degree in 2012, before that, I knew very little, almost to, close to none, uh, mm -hmm. facts or history about Eastern Europe. I knew about certain historical things because, of course, while I was in university, I had some classes of European studies and my teacher was um, Cuban and he lived in Russia for quite a long time. So mm -hmm. obviously I had like the very basic parts of Eastern Europe, but... Um, When I came, when I, you know, had contact with people from the Balkans or from Ukraine, that my first contact with Ukraine was in 2009 with a friend that we spent time together when we went on a trip to St. Petersburg. 
And yeah, I realized that from the border of Germany to the east, for for me, it was like a very, like, how to say? Yeah, like they had very a, a very culturally distinct behavior. That's what I that's what I wanted to say. That if you ask me, do you think that they that Europeans are the same? Of course they are not. But in my view, I think that Eastern Europe presents presents us with a very different perspective of reality. Maybe because of course they were under Soviet rule. Obviously, when you have lived in a very specific context, you are surrounded by things that are common or the usual or usual business for you. But when you go somewhere else and you see those things that they do not exist there, it like you come you like you get shocked, of course, because mm-hmm. Westerners most of the times, but I think it's the same for everyone around the world. When you go to another country, you get surprised that uh, to see that certain things that you see in your own country, you don't see them there. So I basically think it's also a part of um, measuring other countries based on what we have seen or based on what we know from our own countries. Okay, so imagine, you know, you're, you're explaining to our listeners perhaps something that I, I, is a very interesting topic and there's a lot to be said here. But in brief, what is mm-hmm. the relationship of Russia and China right now? Wow, that's a little bit of a complex question <laughs> because yeah. we could analyze that from many different points of view. But in, sure. in the, to, be, to begin with, of course, China and Russia are the same in so many regards, although culturally distinct. But I mean, of course, we see a lot of similarities of regime style, because obviously Putin has been in power for years, and Xi Jinping is planning to stay there for years as well. So yeah, there's a lot of um, similarities in terms of the regime of the sorry regime type, and mm-hmm. in terms of how they treat their own societies. Unfortunately, I see that as a similarity as well, how Russia and China treat their own people, and. That's something that also comes as a shock to China's neighbors. For instance, Japan and Korea. Even Korea has also um, has also claimed that there's a lot of um, human rights issues in China. And for Korea to actually claim that, it's because it's very noticeable. So I would say that for them, the normal things, that like for them, what it's not normal for us, it's normal for them. Mm-hmm. But... It, 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 but obviously, you know, I live, well, I'm supposed to live in a democracy, but a lot of people are questioning now whether Mexico is a democracy or not, but that's another topic. <laughs> but yeah, I think that also those of us who have grown in, in democratic countries, we can clearly see that um, that there's something wrong with those societies. But sadly, um, for a change to happen in a society, we have to talk about a span of maybe 50 years or 100 years for societies to evolve. So having mm. said that, obviously, Russia finds uh, some sort of um, echo to their own ideas about regimes, about stability, and about how people should be treated with China. Although guys that they are similar in many ways, they're also competing for influence in their own region. Because yeah. if because the United States is surrounded by, by water, and down there, it's us, and well, Canada is up there, but Canada is more of an ally because the US and Canada are similar in many things. However, Russia and China, for the same reason that they have culturally distinct societies and uh, yeah, distinct culture, basically, obviously they somehow are competing for influence in their own sphere. We see that in Central Asia particularly, and um, a lot of countries now, like Kazakhstan, it seems they're drifting more towards China's orbit than and away from Russia. Mm-hmm. In a way, it's mm-hmm. kind of self self-preservation, I suppose, if you if you're generally not the most powerful country and you're going to pick a big 
a big, a bigger country to be friends with. I, yeah, I, I can. I'm not saying it's right, but I can understand. It. Yeah, it's just that, of course, you guys and me, we have we have grown in democracies, and obviously, for example, in the case of my dear friend Pingu here, yeah, he, I mean, Taiwan is very distinct to China in so many regards. So many, obviously, if if we make a comparison, we would never finish. Going back to the um, late eighties and early nineties, um, obviously the Soviet Union was a collapsed, but then at the same time we had Tiananmen Square, and I, I just wonder if the um, disaster of the nineties for Russia has influenced China's development since then. Certainly, that's a very that's a very good question. Moved towards a very totalitarian, just as um, they were being freed up. And see more more democracy, a bit more freedom. And then uh, I don't know whether the Chinese leadership at the time got got completely scared and and backed out. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I got to tell you something. I think that for a democracy to be successful, it's very important for for people to be educated, guys. And sadly, um, well, in Latin America, we have been talking about a concept called um, how is it called? Wait. Oclocracy, which consists of the worst of society of society getting into politics and governing a country. And unfortunately, with uneducated societies, what happens is that the worst of us turns out to, you know, turns on to get into politics and start governing the country. So I think that a weakness of democracy is that you need educated people, because otherwise, if people are not informed, they, how can they issue an informed vote? So in your view, <clears throat> like Russia and China sort of did have some similar paths in the 90s. And it's it, you would say it's possible it's in part because of the lack of education. I would say so, because, of course, it's very it's for certain systems. It's easier to manipulate the masses. And I have to tell you that I see similarities in terms of masses manipulation in Russia, in China and also here, because the rise of populism, it's also because of that, guys, because people are not they are not interested in questioning what is being told to them so basically that's that's pretty much the danger here that people are not are not um, aware or they are not informed enough about what's happening around them and how decisions actually affect them so i would say that um for democracies to be successful successful it's very important to have people informed and well or at least that they understand what is happening around them because in China, of course, you see that there's a considerable sector of people that are well-educated. However, you cannot say that this share of educated people represent the rest of China. But for instance, um, in Japan and in Korea, people are a little bit more, more informed or a little bit more aware of what is happening around them. But this also has to do with transparency, you know, because if there is openness with information, of course, society can be better informed. But I think this is a bit of a bit of a matter of uh, tactics to control the masses. Yeah, I was going to add that as well because when you have a society where your only experience of political power, as well as is is is, is well, power, it's, it's through coercion, it's through violence, and without democratic participation, you haven't got mm -hmm. that motivation in the same way to create civil society to develop those sorts of uh, higher notions. Let's say. This is why, you know, um, in Eastern Europe and stuff, since, since democratization, it's been quite difficult for them to have uh, to to build these sorts of social things. We see it slowly over time. You know, like, for example, um, mm -hmm. a, a lot of people in Russia or in Eastern Europe, even like less and less, but still 
uh, some of them don't feel motivated to get involved with local politics because to them politics is a waste of time because it's about power and money and corruption. If you've never seen politics as a way to make a positive change as well, you just you don't have the incentive. It's actually in a way beneficial for you to stay in government. There's almost self-interest going on there to just keep your head down and not get involved. Especially if you're in Russia and you can get arrested for just drawing it. Exactly. I absolutely agree. Also because something that we have to consider as well is that corruption once that it has been accepted and that, his, and that it's regarded as the only way to actually accomplish or do something, it becomes part of, of the culture. So unfortunately, when it's well embedded in the culture or deeply embedded, sorry, in our culture or political culture, whatever, mm. obviously it's very hard to, getting rid, to get rid of it because it becomes part of the system. So, yeah. I mean, Russia in terms of corruption, it's, I mean... Maybe it's a little bit far-fetched what I am going to say, but in terms of corruption, it's worse than us, actually. So for me, actually thinking about a place that in corruption is worse than Mexico, it's just out of my span of reality. So Russia and China go back a little bit. So their relationship, I mean, through history, the, you know, the USSR and China had very, you know, they were close at the time. They had the, the split as well. I don't want to get into the whole history of that right now, but they've always had this wavering uh, relationship and as you said, they have competing interests in the, the, like Central Asia particularly, but elsewhere. Um, even recently, even within the year, though, we've seen China's stance against on the war change. You know, to start with, they were very sort of on the fence. Sometimes they seem to condemn Russia and now they seem to be almost like fully behind them. Can you, mm. in your opinion, what, why, why are they doing this? Why are they always flip-flopping and what do you think they really think? Well, this is not like a definite answer because no, in my view, I, I think in my view, China has just been navigating in a way that they don't get in, into problems with the West or they don't mm -hmm. get to, into problems with Russia. But I think it's very obvious for every single one of us around the world that China has been supporting Russia economically because otherwise Russia would not be able to do what it's doing right now. And apart from Iran, of course. Yeah, it's just that I'm telling, well, we have a proverb here that says, that if you see your neighbor washing his bird, you should prepare, you should start washing yours because then then you will definitely start trimming your own hair. That's what we say here. <laughs> that if you see that somebody's doing something and that person is very similar to you, so you should start preparing to do the same that that person is doing. So I think it's basically the case with China. Like they are not they are not they are not keen on the idea of a war because if they were keen on, on a war maybe they they would have already acted against japan or against korea or against taiwan in a more determinant way or a more coercive way talking about you know military actual military intervention intervention or that's how or that's that is how i see it but yeah i think china has just been navigating in a double discourse because one day they say yes country sovereignty should be respected. And then the next day they're like, yes, we are behind Russia. So we all are, are like, well. Yeah, so so in your opinion, it's just, um, it's a matter of just trying to not run too much into trouble with either side. I was going to ask, uh, you said about Taiwan, and do you think that if Russia had succeeded or did succeed, do you think China would have taken more risky action perhaps against Taiwan or something like this? Absolutely, yes. I mean, the positive part of the world actually standing out for Ukraine in, you know, in a more determinate way, it's also a very good sign for 
you know, for countries that are China's neighbors, including Taiwan, because I'm absolutely convinced that had Russia had success in, in Ukraine, China would be more than keen on invading Taiwan, regardless mm -hmm. of the costs. The thing is that obviously, if Taiwan gets invaded, they basically crush the international economy, or at least the economy of, um, yeah, technology, uh, automotive industry, like lots of industry because of these things of the of the semiconductors. So yeah, I'm absolutely convinced that if Ukraine had failed, China would definitely be preparing an invasion to Taiwan. There is no question about that. I think the American government said that they wouldn't let the semiconductor factories actually fall into China hands. So it's likely America would destroy them if, if the worst came to the worst. They're, they're, they're that important. It makes and and it makes sense because and also the part of moving a part of the semiconductor manufacturing industry to this side makes perfect sense. But obviously, absolutely nobody would be able to replace the um, capabilities of of um, semiconductor production from Taiwan from one day to the other. I mean, come on, guys! Imagine it would be horrible. It's it's interesting when you look at the because obviously Pingu knows more about it than any of us. I was chatting. The actual landscape of the island doesn't lend itself to a uh, like a land invasion, and we've we've seen the the disaster of Russian um, armor weakness with them um, Western missiles. Uh, I guess that was a massive shock to the, to the Chinese army as well. I guess so. I wonder if lots of plans got put back. Actually, this has been like a wake up call for the world in general because every single, well, not every single country, but I think that many countries, in Mexico included, we assumed that Russia was the second most powerful army in the world. And surprise! I mentioned earlier about the uh, China visit to Russia. So there's sort of two slightly different views out there on what it symbolized. So there's one view that this was a sign of Russia's subservience to China or becoming a junior partner to China. And there's the other view that this was about China bolstering Putin, showing his support and strengthening Putin, Putin's position. Uh, in your opinion, what do you think about that? I think that China will have to decide at some point whether they stick to their, you know, to this, to their rhetoric of respect to sovereignty and respect to internal affairs. Mm -hmm. And I think that after the COVID lockdowns and the reactions of people in China, they have to sort of um, revise within if they, you know, regarding that the part of the Communist Party cannot keep people, you know, in order for a long time or for a long period of time. Because you, re you guys, I think, do you remember the protests out of the COVID lockdowns, right? So I think that was a very strong sign for Beijing to actually change its course, at least regarding how they expect to keep social stability. Of course, if we talk about the concept of social stability in China is very different to that one of Russia, because in Russia, people seem to actually accept whatever the Kremlin, say, Kremlin says, and they take it as granted, and they take it as the only version of reality. So that's also a very bit of a, of a challenge for the Russian society, because Honestly, as I see things and as I see the very little opposition to war in Russia, I really don't know if actually Russia is going to survive as a society because the, the Chinese are a little bit more open to learn. The Russians are not, guys. That's a little bit of a, of a question that we have to, you know, to see how it actually gets answered throughout time. Yeah, we, we saw that, didn't we? There was physical violence and the police struggling to keep people under control in China. Mm -hmm. I think. 
nothing close to that in Russia. It's just completely different, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it's just that in Russia, people are, are brought up and they are taught that whatever the Kremlin says or whatever the reality shows them is the only thing that that it's uh, that can be considered as the truth and the only reality that exists. So that's pretty much why you have a lot of Russian migration in many places around the world, because once they see, well, you know, you know as, as, as one of these very good movies from, you know, the transition from communism to capitalism says, welcome to capitalism. So I think that's a little bit of the thing that happens with Russia, that once that people see another reality, they just realize that there is an option. The thing is that they are very selfish, like they are not keen, keen enough to share this knowledge with other members of the society. So obviously they are with this idea of, as far as I am okay, I don't care about the others. Whereas in the case of China, even the Chinese diaspora, they are they are very supportive of their own families in China, but also they are very supportive of whatever efforts the government is carrying, is carrying uh, around to make the country grow or make the country progress. In the case of the Russian society, many of them are very selfish and individualistic. Well, this this goes into a lot of the '90s and the the collapse and how basically the way you, you had to be to survive. Um, this is a this is a problem. A lot of the former Soviet countries. Uh, I do mm-hmm. disagree with the point about everyone believing the Kremlin propaganda. I think a lot of the time it's just about demotivating you because you can't tell what's up and what's down. I think that's also a lot of the goal. But they'll make it as ridiculous as possible to make you think the truth is only slightly ridiculous. Or you. And, and this is why they put out so much terrible information in the West. Uh, is what demotivating, confusing. I think this is actually quite. This is, I think, more dangerous than pure propaganda. I think because it makes people apathetic. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's a very small sector of the Russian society that actually dare to question what they are being told. But I think also the part of questioning what you are being told, it's an individual choice as well, guys. So. I think it's a little bit of, um, of yeah, of course, they live in a very particular regime. They are of a very specific mindset. However, questioning what you are being told by your government, it's also a personal choice. I mean, you don't have to go and question the authority at all and make an organized uprising or something like that. I think that looking, looking further into what you are being told, it's also a personal choice. However, it's not always easy. Do you think China's sending Z to Moscow, do you think that was... Good for Putin, or do you think it's better for China? Who won in this this situation? Well, I think that in this regard, China might be balancing its position regarding, sorry, um, according to the outcome of the war on the long term. I think because mm-hmm. if Russia gets, if, if Russia loses the war, which is something that it's highly likely, then I think that China will have to reconsider a lot of a lot of things of regarding their own position. But obviously, I think that this, this war is not even convenient for China either because they feel also obliged to support Russia economically. So how long can they support them? It's because Russia is North Korea. It's not North Korea. So obviously, that's something that they have to consider. <laughs> if it's not in their interest, it seems weird that they, they support them then. It seems like, why show up in Moscow? Why do this? It seems better to, to put a distance. It seems contradictory. Because I think that they are trying to comply with the with this idea of Russia is our our ally and we have to support them regardless of whatever happens. Mm-hmm. But I think that in any case, depending on the outcome of the war, they might have to start reconsidering, you know, who what's a valuable what what's a valuable ally like? Because in many ways, guys, China 
so China leaves out of foreign direct investments. So if they get way too pushy on defending Russia, then the rest of the countries are going to say, well, you know what, if you are just not supporting the common framework of the law and the common framework of international law, what guarantees do I have of my own investments being respected in your country? So I think that this will raise a lot of questions for Beijing. That's a really good point because you, you came on to the next topic. I wanted to bring up how China's relationship with the West, because um, mm. a lot of people say that China is dependent on Western trade and things like that, and it could never go to war or something like this. Uh, would you agree with that? Would you disagree with that? I would partially agree because mm. thanks to the COVID lockdowns, actually nearshoring is happening in many places around the world. So, yeah. On the on in from one side of the coin, yes, China has a lot of Western investment and somehow depends on it. But on the other hand, the West can have other alternatives. But does China have any other alternatives? Because obviously, China's partners in Southeast Asia and in Latin America, we could not, we cannot, we cannot um compensate the investment that the that other Western countries are pouring into China. Do you think though that the West perhaps? should try to pull away from China right now? Or do you think that would actually push China into a more extreme position? Well, it depends on how they want to to actually manage that. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, the West can decide to withdraw their capitals from China. They are already doing it, actually, because of the COVID lockdowns and because of the whole issue with Hong Kong. However, obviously, withdrawing capitals from, from China could actually enhance the capabilities of Seoul and of Tokyo to attract more investment and actually turn it into hubs in Asia. Because mm-hmm. obviously, if you ask me, most people who invest in China, they invest through Hong Kong. They do not invest through Shanghai. There is a reason for that. So obviously, if you are clapping down on the only place that generates most of the foreign direct investment-related wealth in the country, yeah, you are just pulling people out from there and pushing them out, out from China. So it will depend on the interest of, of each company as well. Especially in a lot of Asian region, you know, uh, Vietnam, even we has a very strange relationship with China, uh, Vietnam, Taiwan, people in Hong Kong, they obviously, they are, they do always feel worried about what China is doing and its influence. My question is sort of what ought to be done to um, help protect sovereignty in Asia from the, you know, what other countries should do and, Generally, yeah, that's my question. So we, we have these concerns. How can we do that without necessarily interfering too much? What do you think is the correct course of action? The mm. big question, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I think discussing sovereignty is a bit of a contentious issue because obviously in the case of Russia and China, they use that discourse according to the convenience. And yeah. they are not the only ones in that regard, guys. My president is yep. like that as well. <laughs> but, um, but I would say that... Um, that the war waged against Ukraine would also show the world the importance of actually abiding to the rule of law and particularly to international law. Because, you know, taking like moving forward from these ideas of this territory used to belong to me and it's mine and all that, you know, territorial nonsense bullshit. <laughs> I would say that peace is necessary for all of us because right. absolutely no war brings profit to anybody. Some people say, no, yeah, but to the gun makers, no. Not even to the gun makers, guys. This whole thing of, uh, of the war is going to raise a lot of questions about whether we should abide, abide ourselves to international law and to the rule of law. Because I, I am telling you the economic consequences of the wars, they are just, a, a war does not benefit anybody. And I think we all know that already. 
Um, they'll have to be like a perfect answer to what like I, I and that you've answered all the questions I had. Matt, do you have anything you'd like to ask? Yeah, I'm just I'm just interested in the because I'm a bit of a, um, a history nut as well, and I'm, we see a lot of links between <clears throat> the, the different communist and left, leftist governments in Central and South America and the old Soviet Union. And are they they're still in place? Are they? Do you think in the same way that Russia and China are still close together, but, but don't get on quite so well? Anymore? <clears throat> How do you see those relationships between, say, Venezuela and Cuba and Russia going? I think that in terms of economic systems, this is going to raise a lot of questions because the most, let's say that according to historical evidence, the most advisable thing is having something in the middle, not being way too capitalistic to the point of leaving the market do whatever the market wants and not getting into the extreme of having the state controlling everything. I guess that this is also going to raise a lot of questions regarding how countries govern the pe their people and how they manage their own economies. So I think that in this regard, a balance is what would work best for everyone. Yeah, well, we had this discussion with Jack in episode two, where people still see uh, Russia as basically the Soviet Union, just with a different name. But it's not exactly right. And I think Russia might have a lot of um, a lot of issues to the inside after the war. Moreover, in terms of, well, maybe it's very basic what I'm going to say, but the population pyramid, guys. How many men mm -hmm. have died in the war? Let's start with that. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to watch. And uh, like I said in the last episode to Kevin, actually, like, and it's Russia, it can always get worse. And, uh, yeah, they, uh, they do have that habit of not getting better, don't they? Yeah. Uh, anything else to add? So I'm, I'm done with my questions. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, so if you could the channel, I mean, we're seeing more and more um, sort of small arms and, and drones and things going from AliExpress. The Chinese state via AliExpress over into Russia. But those drones are also going, ended up in Ukrainian hands as well. They've had a, such an enormous impact. Like, it's just interesting that China seems very happy about those going to both sides. There's no sign yet of um, China blocking these exports to whether the West or Ukraine. And but, even in China goes goes Gaga, guys. Remember that there's there's near shoring. Actually, there's a lot of debate around near shoring right now. Not only here at my at my immediate context of my workplace, but in the world in general, they are looking for for alternatives to China because the COVID lockdowns really really ruined a lot of businesses. That's interesting. Yeah, like everyone sees all the videos, don't they? The uh, the grenades dropping off the trains, most of which are made in either Taiwan or China. I guess we need to think about what happens if China does actually invade Taiwan. Where are those drones? What's going to happen with the drones? Because the drones are Change, change everything. Yeah, there is. And also how the rest of the world sees this world. Because in the beginning, a lot of really silly people here, they were saying like, no, the world doesn't affect us. We are okay. And then in the G20 meeting, our Minister of Foreign Affairs actually supported the resolution against Russia. And he openly said in the media, because the food prices are getting are, are rising a lot. And the energy prices are getting are getting crazy. And we cannot keep on giving subsidies to energy so we really need this bloody war to end that's what this guy said literally mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah this is the thing and i think a lot of people didn't or still don't quite realize its impact globally because how supply chains are so connected these days because of how much produce is made in russia and how our energy markets 
kind of stupidly rely on like fluctuations so often and predictions because mm-hmm. you know we have plenty of gas in the sea but you know people go we haven't got enough gas we're going to whack up the prices because of the war it's like, the war's not affected the gas how about we that's stupid or whatever but the, the reality is yes it has had impacts and some people say yes have peace and sacrifice everything that obviously is not the solution the solution is to condemn russia and defeat it obviously but yeah i think people have come to realize that and i think china is a good big part of this trade as well and i think there's a lot there that is interesting there's the fertilizer as well which is generated from uses natural gas and um that's a problem as well and i think there was a big train delivering fertilizer from serbia to russia that that was that it just exploded um so that was that was a big loss for them as well um, we're coming back down to grain fertilizer and just fighting for resources yet again i guess and it's just africa is suffering but they yeah they, they're, they're sitting on the fence and this is another thing that puzzles me um for another podcast episode i think <sighs> Yeah, that's the whole thing. Absolutely. I think I'm ready to wrap up our conversation, Matt, unless you have anything else you want to add. No, it's been really interesting. Thank you very much for the opportunity, although, you know, I'm with a part of my head on the on the computer and another other part of my head on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> if you have anything you would like to add or any, like, you actually mentioned earlier some organizations. If there's any charities you think that deserve donating to, anything else you would like to shout out, anything you've done that you would like to share, now is your chance to do that. Oh, well, in terms of um, suggesting charities, um, maybe later on on my Twitter, I can post the link of the PayPal for Proyecto Ajolote here in Mexico. If any of you guys want to donate, the good news is that if you donate in dollars or euros or whatever, the currency rate is very convenient. So, yeah, that's from, from one part. And because that's the, the project of the Ukrainian diaspora. And, yeah, I mean, I'm, of course... Um, well, a lot of uh, fellas uh, have told me that, well, of course, as a, as a Mexican, I got like a lot of visibility on Twitter and I'm really thankful to all of you for that. However, I mean, of course, I got a, a, lo- a really, really great backup from the rest of the Mexican fellas because that's not a lot of us, but we try to do our best against Spanish propaganda. Thank you very much, Maria, for being here and joining us on that episode in our magical tanks. Okay, so now we're going to pick up some the latest uh, news that we've spotted over the last couple of weeks or so. The things that I've noticed the most are the horrific decisions around the Olympics, Joe. Yeah. I, I, am, I am Jewish, and I'm Jewish, so I can say it's got sort of hints of 1936 or whatever again. So it's terrible, isn't it? Yeah, I, I just don't understand this at all. Oh, and also now Russia is going to have the be the president on the UN. Yeah, so Olympics and UN. I mean, it's not like Russia is running the Olympics, but still, the fact that they are allowed to compete is abhorrent, well, offensive, and yeah. being part of the Human Rights Council is just. Um, yeah, it's disgusting, isn't it? It's just about money, I'm afraid. Yeah, I, I won't be watching if they're, if they're on. Certainly not. I mean, we, we boycotted the year 1980 Olympics. Yeah. 
I think there will be a concerted effort to boycott the Olympics. I mean, like, um, there has to be, really. I think that is something we all have to uh, look at. Uh, maybe NAFO can be spearheading this. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure we will. More um, Olympic We've also got the ICC. Mr. Putin can be arrested. Do you think, I mean, I, I, like, like I said to Maria, I don't think it's going to be um, necessarily, I, I don't know what it means entirely. I don't know if it's just, I don't think it's, just, some people say it's a token gesture. It's not going to do anything. And some people say, think that it's going to be arrested immediately. I don't, I don't think it's either of those positions. I do think it's, it is symbolic. It's a very strong symbol and it can set a precedent. And there is, there is a chance he could, he could be arrested one day and that would be, Fantastic, and yeah, it blocks a lot of diplomatic efforts. And it's, yeah, I, think I mean, over hundred countries, is it? Yeah, including all of South America, big chunks of Africa. Yeah, it's actually quite an incredible move, really. Yeah, yeah. and apparently there is a bit of a panic now in um, in, in Russia about this. So, um, you know, the various propagandists and people linked to him with this having second thoughts now. You know. The Russian line has generally been kind of, oh, this is a hypocritical decision, which is interesting because if it was like not a worry to them, they wouldn't have said anything. Like clearly, no, no, exactly, they would not. They they just ignored it. You know, when you've annoyed them, because they mention it. Speaking from um, personal experience, when when we all appeared on Special Candidate, didn't we? And so that was when we knew we'd made it. Yeah. What else is going on? Okay, so the looming supposed counteroffensive. I've been a bit surprised that it seems Ukraine or a lot of Ukrainian sources have been sort of telegraphing this is coming. Um, there was that American guy who showed up and said, "Oh, they're going to shock the world." I thought that was a really weird statement to yeah. make because yeah. usually Ukraine have been very good at surprise, mm-hmm. and I, I I don't know. I mean, but Ukraine's been very good at misdirection. I don't feel they would be telegraphing this for no reason. <laughs> I'm just a bit, conf- I'm just a bit confused. I'm just a little bit surprised. What, what I've seen photos of Western tanks covered in um, ERA and uh, explosive armor, um, which is um, in, in uh, fashion in um, Ukraine and Russia, isn't it? Um, mm. So there's all this, and um, the defense minister of Ukraine's driven a challenger around the field. So there's a big, there is a big PR thing going on. They've got, history of, they've got a history of trolling Russia. So actually yeah. posting stuff and saying, oh, wouldn't it be funny if this happened? Or, you know, this would never happen. And then the next day it does. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Uh, the weather needs to get better. Well, yeah, I think we'll see when we when we start seeing more attacks on maybe Crimea to stop people from moving around. I think. Yeah, I mean, they are building their defences up in Crimea and people are, apparently, I'm not 100% sure, but people are leaving again and selling properties and stuff like that. I do think that is an interesting sign. A lot of people have felt that Crimea was just a pipe dream. Well, the most they could do was fire rockets, but yeah. it's a possibility. I mean, Russia wouldn't be preparing somewhat if they didn't think it was real. Right? Yeah, but I'm not seeing them. Um... There's not been any sort of con- sort of concerted effort. I don't think yet. we would have been seen more yeah. from the last time. They they did a lot of um, sort of preparation work. Really. I think. What do I know? What do I know? Brain damage yeah. and all. Yeah, I'm not a military strategist, and so I don't like to speculate too much. I'm not going to get the map out with big thick arrows saying, "Yeah, going this way." <laughs> and um, 
Um, we've also was it, oh, the, the China visit, which we'll cover in more detail with Maria, aren't you? But just the the, um, the hilarious and slightly rude photos of Putin and Xi, just uh, that, they cheered me up immensely. Yeah, you know that was a you know it was AI, right? I don't I don't care. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah. it's just funny. <laughs> oh dear, and. I think someone actually calculated the different heights of the chairs as well and the size of the cushions and everything. So it was um, taken in, people took it very seriously. It was Um, quite funny. There was just people laughing. There was photos with um, various ministers laughing in the background as he was walking around. It's a humiliation. Well, for Russia, you mean? Handed over the country, haven't they? Basically, as far as I can see. See, this is a view, I'm not so sure. I I, I don't know if it's... If it's um, about, you know, or has the other view is, you know, that Russia has boosted, has been boosted by China here and that it's a show of support. Uh, I, I, I'm somewhere in the middle, I think. Yes, I think, I think it makes sense Russia is going to lean harder on China uh, because it kind of need to. And in a way, yes, it shows that it's bad. It is that they are in a bad situation. I do think perhaps it will give Putin a bit of sense of security, but I. I don't think that much. I I I don't know what is really going to change on the ground. Okay, maybe they'll get some more supplies. I'm not sure. China's got interest in playing both sides still, doesn't yeah. it? Which we do. We know that. Yeah. yeah. Now, my co- can I please do my coping? Something really yeah. excited about it. Let's move um, on to coping. I, I just remember joining NAFO and there was a poll. We set up a poll on someone's OSIN account. Um, but we said, what's the oldest? vehicle that Russia would deploy during the um, during the war and in, in the space of a week Oryx posted a T-55 on the train and then we had a 1941 Ziz-6 BM-13 Katusha rocket launcher with the associated fuel tanker this on the same platform and we have also seen an IS-3 um, armoured vehicle as well but I think the 1940 Rocket like Stalin's organ, I think it was what it is. That right? Is that right? Essential. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's utterly brilliant. And so I've seen all these memes with Challenger Two, Challenger Two tanks. You were correct. It's called Stalin's organ. Um, Yeah, they have been seen being heading towards Ukraine with associated logistic support. Uh, but apparently, if Wikipedia is to be believed, the name came from German troops. And then, oh. and then the, the nickname was spread to Denmark, Finland, okay. France, Norway, yeah. Netherlands, Belgium, Hungary, okay. Spain, and other Spanish-speaking countries, as well as okay. in Sweden. Well, there okay. we go. <laughs> well, you can see from the photo that it's not overly armoured. Uh, no, it is not. It did. The one I saw had very nice white wall wheels, though. It looked very stylish. <laughs> but I reckon, what, a couple of shots from a Bradley would sort it out, I don't know. Yeah, uh, it doesn't look uh, strong. <laughs> and and so, so the copium is just, it went from, no, we'd never send, we'd never send any of that to, here's the photos and the videos. Oh, no, but C-55 would definitely survive a strike from a challenging thing. And yeah, I mean, just the, the meltdown and the cognitive dissonance is just, as this war goes on, it's just getting worse and worse. It's just, these photos, all these old gear, these old tanks, it's just it's just mad. Like, yeah, everything that we said, yeah, we were jokingly saying Russia would do. And no, now they're doing it. The only copium I had this week, it wasn't much. Um, okay. Well, 
it's it's I had just I caught a couple of gems on Twitter. I will just bust out. My favorite one is okay. Troll story. Our favorite uh, anti NAFO idiot on Twitter. It's a quote from Prigazin, apparently, though, that if Wagner fall, it will take the AFU and the foreign forces with them and will enable Russian armed forces to stand as one and go further to protect the interests of the country, then its historical mission will be fulfilled. So I like this idea that um, somehow losing all your men will be fine and then Russia will be able to win because see, Russia isn't losing its own men that aren't in Wagner. I just found that objectively hilarious and very much copium if it's and this is a pro-russian account tweeting that that makes me laugh as well i think only the ones they, they post sort of um utopian photos don't they so how wonderful everything is is that right uh, yeah <laughs> okay so i think thanks to maria and thanks for me and thank you for listening and we will have this catch you on the next episode or whatever that is so thank you again to maria and yes goodbye bye